0: the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, would you join me as we pray? Father, as we hear that strong word, we pray that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would um, not let it escape us so that we wouldn't miss the grace that you have for us in it. So give us ears to hear, in Christ's name, amen. Well, let's, let's start off with a little bit of a group participation, a little quiz here. I'm wondering, can you name, let's say, uh, five of the most common laws that are transgressed and broken? What's that? Speeding? Jaywalking. What was that? I didn't hear that. Parking, okay. Come on. Taxes. What's that? Taxes. Okay, taxes. All right. We're, we're, speaking, we're speaking hypothetically, of course. All this. All right, let me, let me uh, give you some help. Uh, even though that was pretty good. Pretty good. Um, this comes from a Business Insider uh, article. Uh, Speaking on the cell phone while driving, not wearing your seatbelt, underage drinking, sharing medications, jaywalking, going to bathroom outside, <laughs> no dog license on your dog. And uh, that gives us sort of the top eight. We didn't see taxes on there or parking, but I'm sure they're on the list uh, somewhere. And as you hear that list, your response might be, oh, come on, some of those are little laws, little sins, right? Jaywalking, not getting your dog a license, going to the bathroom outside. Well, maybe that you would say that that isn't, but that's contextual too, right? So we have this category in our mind for big sins and little sins. But there's problems with that. First of all, what might be a little sin to you is not a little law to me. Or let's just even not talk about sin for a second. Let's just talk about laws. For instance, you might say, well, underage drinking isn't that big of a law until someone gets behind a wheel. Then it becomes a bigger deal. Or maybe an owner of an industrial site says, it's not that big of a deal if I clean up all my waste But the people in Flint, Michigan would probably disagree with that, as it's poisoned their water over the years. Can we really say that there are little laws? And when we do that, we run into some issues. Uh, One is when we adopt the mindset of little laws, we begin to compromise or strike at the fundamental of a justice system, because it's the case, often, that when a society picks and chooses which laws it'll obey, injustice is the result, usually on those that are disadvantaged. And more to the point, perhaps, of this passage, the sobering effect of the law, the ability uh, for the law to show us our shortcomings, begins to get lost. We no longer have it anymore. So James comes to this point where he says, if we look at the law of God, we see there are no little laws. We see actually when we break part of God's law, we've broken the whole system. And I'll kind of clarify that in a moment. But also, we're going to be prone to self-deception. And the thing that we'll miss the most in this process is where he's driving And that is that we might understand the law of God, so we might understand the mercy of God. As he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so let's delve into this teaching in hopes that we might get that at the end of it. And there's two things that uh, James gives us here. One, he talks about the demonstration of what it means to be law-abiding from the Bible's perspective. And then he talks about transformation, demonstration and transformation. So let's consider these two things together. At the end of chapter 1 in the book of James, he gives us three tests for what you might call authentic religion. Three tests of truthful religion. And they reappear throughout the book. It's part of the structure of the book. First of all, he gives us the test of good deeds done to the needy. He mentions that in chapter 1 and the end of chapter 2. And then he gives us the test of our words, how we use our words on people. That shows up in chapter 1 and chapter 3. And then lastly, he gives us a test about purity with respect to the world, how we handle our integrity in the world. And there it shows up in chapter 1, but also chapters 4 and 5. And what he then does is, he does a bit of a case study. He takes one sin, the sin of favoritism, and he begins to unroll it in a way that we might, he might illustrate how the law works. He gives us this example of two men. We're not sure if it's hypothetical. It really happened in this community. But two men come into church. They're either there to worship. Maybe they're there to settle a dispute. But one is obviously rich and the other is obviously poor. And you can tell this by their clothing. There have been lots of research and study done on the way people are treated differently based upon the way they're dressed. Uh, Whether it be the benefits they get or uh, the help they get in times of need. Now, maybe we wouldn't look at the favoritism in exactly that way but maybe it would play itself out in a church like ours in that um, the people uh, who I decide to uh, sit next to, who I decide to greet during greeting time, who I decide to make social connections with, is based upon someone with a particular economic status and not the status of another that James is describing here. But favoritism plays itself out in a myriad of ways. And again, we're talking about one area here. For instance, you might have seen it on the job where a manager uh, overlooks the tardiness of one employee or overlooks um, you know, uh, the deadlines that another employee has missed. But they seem to always catch you or catch somebody else favoritism. Or maybe a city that prefers housing development that's going to benefit the rich instead of the poor. In the first century, there was a problem where rich people would land grab. They would get as much land as they could because all wealth was really you know, pocketed there. That's where it was consolidated, and so poor people were getting unfairly pushed off of land course, there's a modern analogy of that in our day. Or maybe it's in fair pay. In chapter five, James will bring up the issue of workers not getting paid their wage. I was spending time just reading stats and studies on the gender gap with respect to pay. And unfortunately, it still exists, despite education equality, despite experience equality. And so there are many different ways that we say favoritism played out in our day and time, in our own lives, you know, our tendency to want to spend time with people that uh, give us something in return. Maybe it's emotional return. Maybe it's networking return. Maybe it's uh, they just get us into a network of people that seem fun. So favoritism is the thing that James has got his finger on here, and it results and actually points to bigger law-breaking. One, he tells us, it's actually a form of worldliness. He says that, uh, don't you know that God has chosen the poor even if society hasn't? Really? What happens when we play favoritism is it shows that we've bought into the standards of the culture for who is someone that's worthy to pay attention and who is not. This was happening in the church. You see this in the eyes of the people of God. And when James talks about God choosing the poor, he he talks about how historically the poor were more receptive to God's word and gospel than the rich were. The second thing is he says ultimately this favoritism, if you take it another step, it's a form of dehumanization. He talks about dishonoring those. That are poor, dishonoring those that don't have money. As far back as the book of Genesis, God states that every man and woman, no matter their circumstance, no matter even their moral condition, is made in the image of God after the likeness of God and is deserving of fundamental dignity and respect by virtue of being made in his image. And then he says there's a tendency actually towards self-exaltation. This lies a couple steps away from favoritism. He says, While you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down on my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and listen and become judges with evil thoughts? So he would say, In the case of favoritism, what's gone on is we've actually elevated ourselves as a judge over humanity and decided who's worthy of spending time with, but the presumed judgment is false. James literally says, he, he, he warns and counsels us, do not receive a face. That's what he says literally. Meaning, do not be fooled by appearances. Don't just receive someone face value of what they look like. And then lastly, favoritism is really a repudiation, a renunciation of Mercy. Because the Christian faith would teach us that all of us are spiritually poor. This is what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Each of us deals with spiritual poverty before God. And so do you see what he's doing here? He starts with sort of the first line of how one sin works its way out, and then he increases it more. And this leads him to a statement where he says, there's, there's really no little sin after all, because they all break the law of God. I was reading a um, <clears throat> article, a report that happened a couple of years ago, where an elderly woman in Georgia—not the state, but the country—was scavenging for copper, and uh, she was working with her spade in the ground, and she cut through a cable. You would say, well, you know, that's going to happen. Maybe you were doing the same thing. You came close to a cable. The problem was that cable carried Internet to 3.2 million people across Georgia and Armenia. Now, because uh, the fiber optic line is actually monitored in Europe, immediately they deployed a security law enforcement to the area where it was and arrested her. And uh, she finally was released, don't worry. In part because she said, I I don't even know what the internet is, you know. But here she was, you know. Just an example, right, of how a very little thing has very big consequences. I say that because we need help. Sometimes theologians, to help us this way, will take the Ten Commandments. Because obviously, one of the ways that we kind of skirt out of understanding... The impact of the laws, we said, well, you know, it wasn't like I broke one of the Ten Commandments. But when you begin to understand that the Ten Commandments are actually summaries, they're, they're sort of categories and titles, you then begin to understand how little sins, quote unquote, really are um, surface expressions of something deeper. Uh, Dan Doriani, a theologian I mentioned last week, He takes the sin of favoritism and he applies it to the Ten Commandments. See if you don't see how this connects. He says that uh, when we show bias toward the rich, we often do so because we are hoping it might be an advantage to our position. That's breaking the last commandment, coveting. When we choose to show kindness and faithfulness to someone in the body of Christ based upon their economic status, we've committed a form of adultery. We've broken a bond of relationship. In fact, in the book of James, James calls sin spiritual adultery. That runs throughout the Old Testament. That's the seventh commandment. When this occurs within the people of God, it's actually false worship. Breaks the third commandment. And then, lastly, when this is done publicly, it becomes um, really a mark on the name of God and the character of God. In the book of Romans, Paul will rebuke the religious people and say, Because of you, God's name is held in contempt in the outside world. And so, there, we're taking God's name in vain. And so even the smallest little thing, if we understand it properly, breaks the law and has ripple effects, tremors. This is why James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And if we begin to understand this, we then begin to understand why the psalmist said, Oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Who could even stand before you? And you see, when we find ourselves before the throne of God, which we all will find ourselves before, every one of us will stand before him. And all of our lives will be seen in the light that they're truly uh, understood to be, nothing being covered When we think of that, our tendency is to do a couple things. One is to dismiss it and say, come on, that's exaggeration. Another is to turn to duty. Well, I guess I'll just have to step it up and get better. A third one is just to despair, because what am I going to do? I mean, we looked at favoritism, but what if we looked at greed? What if we looked at gossip? What if we looked at lust? What if we looked at how could I stand Well, James leads us to a different place. He leads us to mercy. And it's only people that have stood before the law of God honestly and seen its many layers that will really be able to apprehend and grab hold of mercy and the transforming effect of it. James says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty Now, that appeared in the last chapter, where uh, where James, rather, says, it's like you and I go up to a mirror, and that mirror is the law of God. And when we look at that mirror, all of a sudden we see that we're not dressed so well. We're undone before us. Then it raises the question, how can it be a law of freedom and liberty then? It seems like it would be a law of condemnation. And the reason it is is because... When you understand the gospel, you look into that law mirror, and you see Jesus. You see him clothing you in his righteousness. The law becomes a law of freedom and liberty only when you've been set free from its demands and its condemnation. This is the whole point of why Christ comes. Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian, says, The law does not come to Christian believers in naked condemning power but in the hands of him who has died under its condemnation and was raised for our justification. The Christian faith teaches that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, so he is the lawgiver. If you're familiar with his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, this is why he says things like, you've heard that it was so, but I say to you, what he's doing is deepening the law of God. He can do that because of the lawgiver. But also in that sermon he says, I've come to fulfill the law. Which means the lawgiver came to live under the law. Every, bit, every part of it, every little part of it he came to fulfill and live under. Why does he do that? He does it so he can offer his obedience in place of yours to God. But he also does it that he might suffer condemnation for our law-breaking. This is the entire point why Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ didn't come as a sage to sort of teach people how to be better. He didn't come as a moral philosopher. He didn't come as just a spiritual guide to sort of help you have a happy life. He came to stand in the bar for you and me. He came to stand before the law and to absorb its rightful condemnation. Why does he do it? Well, the book of Ephesians puts it like this. We were by nature children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Read that again in case you didn't hear it. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. While we were dead in sins and trespasses made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. It's so James could say at the end of this passage, so mercy would triumph over judgment. As I said, each one of us will stand before God one day. And, you know, if you struggle with that thought, just think, well, if we basically have a system on earth of justice, why would we think there would not be one that's spiritual? Ours is derivative of God, the great judge. And when we stand before him, It says that every mouth will be stopped. There'll be no more I should have or could have or I did or this is why. It just won't be possible. We can fool each other. I can fool you. We can't fool God. But what we find for those that avail themselves of God's mercy, even tonight, even today, whether you're someone outside of the church, whether you've been a religious person all your life, and you realize, I I haven't been really connected to the gospel of grace. I've been trying to justify myself by my religion and morality. For that person that avails themselves of Christ and the mercy of God, that will be a day of victory. Because the great law keeper, Christ, will have slayed the law. The law will no longer have a threat over you and I. There's no other faith that teaches this. There's no other faith that brings you. Every other faith or secular system is going to remand you to taking care of this yourself. It's either going to have to minimize justice and basically say that somehow heaven's justice is less uh, robust than ours. That can't make sense. It's either going to minimize justice or it's going to put it on you. But the gospel takes us somewhere else. And then it can transform our view of law in two ways, to close this out. First of all, we can then view the law rightly. We stop misusing the law for what it was never intended to be. You know, maybe you have a propensity uh, to sometimes use a tool not for its purpose. You know, I have done that more than a few times. You know, silverware that's bent now, right? Things that, right, you, you, you sit there and think, I can handle this. Well, the law was never used, was never meant to be used so you and I would justify ourselves before God. It was never meant to use so you and I might be able to boast over other people and say, we're more moral than the world is. Right? It was never meant to have this one upmanship. We're told that it's a royal law of what? Love. James cites the second of the two biggies. The first one is love God with everything you got. Love your neighbor with everything you got. The law has always been love. And so James says this is the royal law. You know, if you serve your neighbor because it makes you feel good or you serve your neighbor because it makes you look good or you serve your neighbor because it somehow is going to advance, you're not doing it because of love. You know, the other day, I, I was performing a very simple task, uh, and you would have thought I was in a great spiritual battle. You know, I, I don't know if you all get this, but we have a tree in front of our house, and it's got those little, like, helicopters, you know, those little things, and, and we usually wait, um, you know, uh, we wait until they've all fallen down. So, th- the tree is right in front of my house, so I guess that makes me, it's tender, you know, I'm its steward and caretaker because I get the benefit from it. So uh, I probably shouldn't feel this way, but I feel like they're my helicopters. Every single one. And so, you know, here we are waiting, and we wait till the last big storm, so that most of them will fall down. And I'm thinking, I know my neighbors think, what's the deal with this slacker Hoburg? You know, for weeks, they're near us, they blow, you know, I, I walk in my house, they're on my rug, why won't the guy sweep them up? So, you know, I'm sitting there dealing with this tendency to want to justify myself. I see a neighbor and I say, yeah, I'm just waiting for them all to blow down here so we can get it done. So finally, I got to do it. I got to justify myself. And I was outside, and I began to do the work. And I battled the entire time between, God, help me do this just for you, and number two, help one of my neighbors to see me today. <laughs> and guess what? My next-door neighbor, next door, I, not only the wife came, Ubered. I mean, I was only 15 minutes, Uber drops her off. And then the husband came in a little bit later, right? It was a grand day for my justification. Misusing the law. We can misuse good things all the time. The gospel leads us to this place where we begin to treat treat the law in the right way as a light to show us what love is. Uh, Again, Sinclair Ferguson says this. He has a neat little way to understand this. He goes, uh, we were outlaws with respect to God's law. But then what happens is we got married to Jesus Christ, the great husband and at that point, the law became our in-law. We were outlaws, but the law then becomes our in-law. Now, sometimes, you're, you know, you're at odds with your in-laws. But Jesus takes care of that because he's the husband. He takes care of the problem we had with the law. And we can begin to actually develop an affection for the law. It raises the question... See, what it'll do, if we look at it rightly, it won't raise questions like, am I moral or a good person? It'll raise questions like, do I love God just for himself? Do I love him just for himself? Is my relationship, is my religion more about rule-keeping than faithfulness, loving faithfulness? Second of all, we not only see the law whole, uh, rightly, we see it holy. James makes this point. You don't pick and choose and say, well, you know, I won't commit adultery, but I'll murder someone. And when James gets to this point of saying we break the whole law, he's not saying that there aren't degrees of law or degrees of sin. He's not saying that. He's saying rather, you know, when you break, the, when you commit a transgression, you have broken the law. Right? Just plain and simple. And what happens is we begin to no longer be selective And this is something that plagues, you know, us big time, I think, in this day and time. Where we might say, you know, yeah, I like Jesus' teaching on justice and mercy, but I don't like it so much on sexuality. Or I like Jesus' teaching on the way he puts down those that are greedy, but I don't like it so much uh, on the idea that I'm not allowed to call anybody a fool or I'm in danger of hell. Because we love in our righteousness to sort of set up and point to the person on the other side and just completely vent and think it's righteous. And so we no longer are selective. Uh, Last summer I read the book uh, Destiny of a Republic by Candice uh, Millard. It's really a great book. And it's on uh, uh, President Garfield and his assassination. But uh, after he was assassinated... There was a great public call for vengeance. Uh, I mean, people were writing in the paper literally offering ways that they could execute the prisoner in the most, uh, in the way that would make him suffer the most. One prison guard actually took a shot at the prisoner, missed him, but he was commended. So vengeance was running high. But there was a voice of calm General William Tecumseh Sherman. Now, this is a military guy. This is what he says. I do ask every soldier and citizen to remember that we profess to be the most loyal nation on earth to the sacred promises of the law. Listen to this. There is no merit in obeying an agreeable law, but there are glory and heroism in submitting gracefully to an impressive one, oppressive one. See what he's saying there. There's no glory if we're just obeying the laws that we tend to agree with already. But there's costly love when we obey something that's difficult for us, where it's hard, where it really shows love to God and sacrifice. And this is how the law gets transformed. The grace of God, the mercy of God, enables you to start to perform difficult obedience. That's really the, a change, right, between people that don't know them. Religious people can do easy obedience. I say this all the time. Don't even take the religious faith of Christians. I mean, there are religious people in all forms and traditions that are more moral than lots of Christians that I know, including me probably. But that's not the question. The question is why you're obeying. And so we get transformed. The mercy of God helps us understand the law. Let me close with this poem by uh, William Cooper. You may know him uh, as C-O-W-P-E-R. He was uh, very close with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, Cooper, all of his life struggled with depression, despair, insecurity before God. And the law of God would really nag at him. And so he wrote this poem. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey but toiled without success. Then, then, in the past, all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray that God gives us that poem and song in our heart. Father, we thank you for this merciful gospel. We thank you for the way you change us in our view of the law. Would you work that transformation in us, this community, that we might be some holy good to you in our city? In Christ's name, amen.